we've gone toe to toe with some of these, some of those local jurisdictions. And the reality is like, these laws are unconstitutional. <laughs> I mean, whether, whether they are ready to admit it or not, you have a massive supply problem. You have a, a huge force of the population who is working in government jobs a lot of the times that can't afford their housing. And they can't because local jurisdictions won't get out of their own way to unlock supply creation. And we're sitting on empty bedrooms, literally, uh, where 4% of the housing, give or take, that we already have could solve the entire problem. It's just stupid. <laughs> and and, and the, 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 the more pain that we can put on some of those local municipalities that, that just have their heads in the sand, the more they'll start to realize, oh, wait a second, this is a really cost-effective way to solve this problem. And it can be done in such a way that still manages to not tick off all the neighbors. Welcome, professional property managers. Good to be with you. Before I introduce Atticus and we get into the conversation, there's a couple things that um, you know I wanted to just cover really quick. Uh, PMLX, which is really the preeminent digital convening of the industry, um, you know, on an annual basis, there's hundreds of professional property managers who come together, uh, and there's it's a really unique way of of doing it. It's not quite like this where we are generally in a small group of a couple dozen or a few dozen people. And, uh, and there's some Q&A in the chat and interaction that way we can pull some people up. When you've got 400, you know, 500 people registering for an event, uh, it, it gets a little fun. Like we, we had three or four different Zooms that were stitched together. Uh, anyway, kind of like some cutting edge technology for a digital event production to pull it together. Um, and, uh, and anyway, create a really cool environment where there's powerful connection, powerful collaboration and powerful conversation happening in the industry. Last year, we had Chris Voss, FBI hostage negotiator featured as a keynote. We're excited to make some announcements over the week ahead. So you'll be hearing more about this. Uh, you can mark your calendar for August 23rd, 24th. That is the official dates for TWLX. That's Triple N Leadership Exchange. Uh, same conference, you know, idea, different initials. We have a lot of things that people are love. It's going to be the same. We're going to be raising money that 100% of the proceeds from that event uh, go to charity, as they have in the past. And this year, the charity that's been nominated is Make-A-Wish Foundation. Um, and so if you're not familiar with Make-A-Wish, you'll learn more of that, about that great organization. We're excited to support. Hopefully, we can continue to raise uh, $10,000, $20,000 or more like we have in previous years. So with that said, and your calendar mark, we're ready to insufficiently introduce our, our guest so we can bring Atticus to the Zoom stage, Laura. And um, Atticus, thanks for being with us. Atticus lives in Decatur, right outside of uh, Atlanta, suburb of Atlanta, Georgia, and is CEO and founder of PadSplit. You know, and, and Atticus, what I, maybe what I'd like to do to tee things up today is, could you tell everybody a little bit for those, I know there are people on here who are familiar with you and who are familiar with PadSplit, but I know there's also people who are not. Could you just give a brief explanation of when did PadSplit you know, get started, the little elevator pitch of what the company does? Yeah, definitely. Uh, thank you, Andrew. Really appreciate the opportunity. So uh, I founded the company in 2017. Uh, really, we didn't get up and rolling uh, in any, with any degree of seriousness until 2018. 
but uh, PadSplit is the uh, is the largest uh, shared marketplace or marketplace for shared housing, uh, specifically designed for the workforce, uh, any country. And we have uh, we have about forty five hundred units uh, that are on our platform today, uh, space across ten markets or so. Uh, generally the Southeast, but but not necessarily. And, and the idea is we want to help solve the affordable housing crisis one room at a time by leveraging housing as a vehicle for financial empowerment. Uh, and the best way we could think to do that is you make affordable housing possible by making it more profitable, both for hosts or investors, as well as for property managers. And if you could pull that off, then then people would actually go create it on their own. So that's, that's ultimately what we're trying to do is empower people with the tools and incentives and uh, the the plan to actually get that done. So I, I'd love to dive right into this because, you know, creating more affordable housing by creating more profitable housing. Most people, when they hear a statement like that, they would think like, isn't that in conflict? You know, isn't that intention? Um, you know, th those two parts of that same sentence. And, you know, maybe it would be good to just give a little more context on, okay, so what is it exactly that PadSplit is doing that addresses that problem and handles it in that way? Yeah. Pad, I mean, effectively, what, what we enable people to do is to rent by the room and to scale that business in a way that has never been possible before. Uh, the reason I keep the this background behind me, uh, your property managers on the call, you probably heard the term rooming house or boarding house at some point. Uh, this house here is a traditional rooming house uh, this picture was taken maybe four years ago, but it doesn't matter because that house is still in that condition. Uh, and those have existed by the thousands in just about every major market in the U.S. Uh, for a long, long time. And this is the, the first pad split prototype uh, over uh, over my right shoulder. And and ultimately, what, what we do is a, as a marketplace is enable renting by the room uh, and in a single family setting, as you guys have probably noticed, home sizes have increased pretty dramatically over the last 50, 60 years, about 3x almost. And, uh, and there's a lot of space that's wasted. So how much rent do you get for your formal dining room? And the answer almost inevitably is zero dollars. Uh, how much rent do you get for the fifth bedroom of a five bedroom house? And again, the, the answer is almost zero dollars. And so what, what our system enables is we can fill individual rooms quickly with the, the population of individuals who are in desperate need of more affordable housing options uh, and for whom there is a, a complete lack of studios, one bedroom apartments, put them into a shared setting uh, and there's a, there's a tipping point from a pricing perspective. So we can price that first bedroom at 40, 50% less than whatever it would cost them to rent a studio or one bedroom apartment. But instead of that fifth bedroom for the, for the landlord being worth almost nothing, it's now worth exactly the same cost as the first one. And so you, you realize that at around four bedrooms in a single family home or really anything more than two bedrooms uh, in an apartment, you're generally better off financially to rent per room versus renting the entire thing. Uh, but that also means that the prices for those individual consumers is much cheaper as well. So Atticus, let's do a little bit of a, a triple win breakdown here. If we, if we could go in kind of stakeholder by stakeholder, which 
you know, where I want to start is it sounds kind of like if I'm an investor and, you know, I'm working with, um, you know, Pat's Blip, I've got the opportunity to take a four bedroom, single family house, right. Mark. And, and rent it, but it's, it's going to generate revenue, not like a four bedroom house. It's going to generate revenue closer to a duplex, uh, you know, <laughs> or maybe more, I'm trying to think of, you know, ultimately a much higher revenue amount, assuming you've got everything occupied, not Forex, I'm sure what you would get, but what, what kind of results are investors seeing? What's, what's attracting people, you know, ultimately to do things this way? Yeah. I mean, historically it's two X net return. So if, if you're evaluating a, a single family rail portfolio and buying at a 4% cap rate or so in this market, uh, it's reasonable to expect that it, assuming 100% of those units can be converted to pad split, that, that you would now be operating at an 8% cap rate. Uh, and, and that's historically been the case. We have some investors who do a lot better than that, who are just outstanding managers uh, and are really in the weeds. But yeah, the, the idea is to be able to take an asset uh, that, that historically has been stable, uh, but, but really juice that return uh, and and also serve a, a really significant public need. And so, you know, I'm curious what you're seeing. I mean, I'm thinking about in single family rentals, like vacancy can be such a huge cost, right? And the turn can be such a huge cost. But in these type of scenarios, you know, if there's four people in a four bedroom house, okay, one might be moving out and it and it may take a while to to fill that room back up, but you've still got, you know, the rest of the home filled. So, you know, are you seeing, hey, there's, a lot of people moving out all at once or at similar times, or that's kind of yeah. overtime periodic and it reduces the vacancy risk. Great, great question. Uh, often ignored. Then, quick background on me uh, that I that I haven't really given. I started buying houses in 2008 uh, before the crash was even necessarily evident and owned and managed 550 properties, uh, all generally in the, the, the lower income segment. Uh, as I compared P&Ls across my portfolio, and I started experimenting with shared housing in 2009, what I saw was uh, the same types of, of results on net income generation, which was due in large part due because of the, the pricing mechanisms and, and just that, that cash flow potential real-time improvement that I mentioned earlier. The other big one was, holy cow, we get absolutely killed on turn costs, vacancy and turn costs when we have to turn a single family home. And what I noticed with the shared housing model was we didn't have those same costs. Uh, our ongoing maintenance expenses were higher, but largely because we were addressing deferred maintenance over time, as opposed to at a turn. And when you moved strangers in together, what you saw was instead of a family moves out of the house, I go in, determine what whether we're going to return what portion of the security deposit. I pull the poster off the wall and I see, oh, uh, two brothers were clearly wrestling here. Somebody threw their kid brother to the wall and voila, now I have to take care of it or broken windows, ruined appliances, stolen appliances, what have you. Well, I didn't have any of those things anymore. And I didn't need to go back and re-renovate that house. When someone moved out, I had one out of six vacancies. So the house was never completely vacant. Utilities stayed on. The house stayed maintained. I was still generating positive cash flow from that home. And now I had one room to turn. I didn't have to go re-renovate the kitchen. I didn't have to go re-renovate the bathrooms. I didn't have to do new flooring. 
Uh, and I had to effectively turn a, an individual bedroom that was furnished that cost me on average about a hundred bucks. Uh, and so the house was more occupied more often. And I never had those one off, even if my, my tenure was really good at call it four years on average, when I had to go back and re-renovate that house after that tenant had moved out, those costs were always really significant. And when, by the time you bake those into a PL, it was a massive difference. Yeah, it, it makes me curious, like you guys have been doing this long enough and a scale, you know, for long enough now, Atticus, I'm guessing you're, you've proven out some of these questions, like, what does maintenance expense, you know, look like, or, um, you know, damages or things like that, to, you know, what's coming out of potential deposits and things like that? What, what are you observing? Was there anything that surprised you or was unexpected as a part of that? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, and this, this will be really controversial for this crowd, but when I started, we did, I mean, and we still don't really take deposits uh, because I already knew going in, I've been running this business for seven years. Uh, and uh, I knew two things. One, when I had to go turn that single family home, like this house, the first prototype, I had a $45,000 renovation bill when the last family moved out before I finally said, you know what, I'm converting this one uh, to, to shared living. Uh, so did their $1,200 deposit help? It certainly didn't prevent them from causing $45,000 worth of damage to the house. Uh, and, and most of that was on the way out. So they, they had stopped caring long, long ago. Uh, the, the biggest question for me was how do you improve access for people who are hardworking individuals that simply have less than $300 in savings? Uh, and I knew from my time on the ground that those people existed by the many, many millions. And it's about a third of the entire rental population, population in the United States. If you talk about one and two person households that earn less than 35 grand a year, which also means they don't qualify for anything new in the market. Uh, so time uh, to, to be able to iterate on those things and, and really create some validated learnings. Uh, but uh, the, the wear and tear is shockingly less. I mean, no one will believe that until they try it. But in 98 cases out of 100, the wear and tear is less. Again, your, your ongoing maintenance expenses are, will be marginally higher. Uh, so much of that, though, is because when you have six, seven, sometimes eight strangers living in a home, the likelihood that I hear about that plumbing leak that I always wanted to hear about goes up exponentially. The likelihood that I hear about uh, Richard leaving his dirty dishes in the sink goes up exponentially, which you know then prevents uh, potential insect or rodent issues down the line. And so your ability to intervene in what could be very costly problems later down the line is significantly greater than it was before and more than offsets the the increase in in that maintenance. Now I will say like I send a cleaner on a monthly basis to clean all the common areas uh, in my homes. Clearly not an expense that I would put out if if I were if I had an apartment complex, right? Or, or any of the other single family homes that I still own and manage. But it gives me an opportunity again to see, oh, I need to go knock on this person's door, send out a message, et cetera, uh, when you see something that should be attended to. Uh, 
and and you see those things earlier. Yeah. And you know, it, it's interesting. I, I think if we get to the management uh, part, it'd be interesting to hear about. Um, hey, there's some benefits to this, and, and also some challenges. I'm sure, like you were talking about, of hey, noise complaints and just general interpersonal conflict. I got to imagine that's probably more in this scenario than a uh, you know a, a standalone single family home. But hey, there's a lot we've talked about that makes uh, that trouble worth it. But you know, thinking about um, the resident first and talking wow. about this, you know, is, is there a is there a certain type of property? Meaning, like if it's a three bed, one bath, is that is that a good fit for pad split in the kind of scenario that's going to be attractive and get those kind of results? Or is it, Hey, we really want a four bed and at least two bath, or I guess, what are you seeing as far as that or geo or what's really informing what's going to yeah, make it a good fit? Great, great question. I mean, I mean, I think all of these questions are relative within a given market and I am a firm believer that you all are the local experts on your local markets. Uh, so you can discern much better than I ever could. And that's why I wanted to start a marketplace business and not a massive invitation homes, institutional owner of shared housing. Uh, with, with that in mind, what, what we see as the highest performing properties are uh, ones where there is significant inefficiency, um, a la there's a living room and a den, there's uh, a basement that is a daylight basement that could be finished, whether it's a split level home or what have you. Uh, you have, again, like formal dining room that you can convert very easily. Uh, those types of scenarios where when the market looks at that asset, they see a, a relatively low SFR return or something that's not particularly attractive, uh, Where whereas we see, okay, I, I can get a significant bump from renting additional bedrooms with that wasted space. Uh, another obvious one is like, you think about major thoroughfares, right? Uh, the, the value of homes on major thoroughfares usually takes a significant hit. Whereas for us, that's perfect. You would, you would right. rather be on a major thoroughfare because it means closer and easier proximity to jobs uh, or other transportation infrastructure. Um, so, so there are, there are a couple little nuggets like that. And uh, I'm sure our, our sales team has tons more uh, from the people that they engage with on a regular basis. It makes sense if it's if you're on a main street close to a bus stop or something like that for, for a lot of the resident profiles, it could be that much more attractive, right, to be there. Um, what are you seeing as far as demand, like from a, hey, how many applications per property or or what kind of, you know, I, I, we use these traditional metrics of like days on market, you know, talking about vacancy and in your guys' kind of model, how are you thinking about that, measuring at that, and, and what kind of demand are you seeing for it? Yeah, again, like depends on both the product and the market. But when I list my units here in Atlanta, uh, and, and these homes are, as you described, like in town, close to public transportation, relatively close to jobs, I'm getting bookings within hours. Uh, now, I don't want to set the wrong expectations for folks, but average first booking for any home in any market is is less than 10 days. Uh, and an average time to fill is around 45 days uh, to 85% occupancy. Uh, but it all depends on the quality of the product, right? I mean, if you have a nicer room, nicer home, and it's clear that the property manager or the investor really cares about their property, shockingly, those homes fill a lot faster than the ones where uh, so I pigeonholed this 
seven foot by 12 foot bedroom uh, and put a single bed in it, like shocker, those don't book particularly well. Uh, and even people who are not high income still are attracted to curb appeal and uh, the, the basics that I think we would all expect our, uh, our extended family to be attracted to if they were going to, if they were going to book a room somewhere. So moving to the resident side here, Atticus, like if I'm, if I'm a, a potential resident looking for like, Hey, where would I find a property and in, in listing like this? You know, where, where would, how would I, how would I find it? What would I see? Are there options as far as like, you know, is it, is it a one-year lease, six-month lease? Is it, is it 30 days at a time? Do I have options for that? What, what's my experience going to be as I'm looking at booking a pad split spot? Yeah, so, so you'll find us on just about every aggregator site imaginable uh, if you don't already know about pad split. Uh, here, here in the Atlanta market, a lot of people do. This is our, our, our largest market, uh, and word-of-mouth referrals are massive. I mean, we get about 50% of our bookings come from organic traffic, from people who actually go directly to padsplit.com uh, mm-hmm. and, and book, this, book through there. Uh, the, um, in new markets though, it's, it's across the board. We're still averaging between 30 and 50% organic traffic. And we spend, I mean, it's our biggest expense by far is marketing dollars and, and trying to attract those eyeballs of qualified residents to, to our site and to the product. Um, but yeah, we're on 40 plus listing aggregators, whether that's Zillow or sublet or furnished finders or any of those types of things. Cool. And I guess like, help me understand a little bit of, Hey, Uh, I'm seeing all kinds of stuff, whether it's following John Burns or whoever it might be. And you can see, Hey, apartment rent growth, it's up 14% year over year Q1 22. Is that really what pad split is competing against? It's competing against one bedroom and like studio, um, you know, apartments per se, as far as, and obviously they're very much not the same thing. So you're, it's a, it's really a choice, right. That someone's gonna be given, but are those the alternatives that the residents who are ending up in pad split homes are, are considering um, or? Yes. And no, it depends, depends on the customer. I mean, uh, the incomes of our residents range from $11,000 a year to $170,000 a year. Uh, our, our average is about 25 grand. Our median is around 35, 36 grand. Uh, if you think about the people working in the kitchen at whatever restaurant that you just went to, like whatever, the, whatever the latest restaurant you went to, like find the people who are busing tables, uh, or who are working in the kitchen. Uh, if you've been in an airport recently, pretty much every TSA agent, security guard, uh, anyone who works in administrative capacity at a local government, um, in-home health aides, uh, and and then all the way to like graduate students, medical professionals. Uh, it's there are so many different uh, in, employee groups that that fit this uh, this population of folks who just don't don't have access to. I mean, in Atlanta right now, the average one bedroom apartment seventeen hundred or seven hundred bucks a month. That's sixty thousand dollars a year. That's required to qualify. For that, for that unit. How many people in Atlanta earn less than $60,000? That's an enormous population. Uh, it's, it's more than 50% of, of, of folks here in town. So what are their alternatives? It's not really that because they can't get, they can't get past the front door and then they'd have to come up with a deposit as well of at least $1,700. So what we're competing with generally is extended stay motels. Extended stay motels, 
Um, the, the resident's ability to figure something out, whether they're sleeping on mom's sofa, friend's sofa, auntie's sofa, uh, or in some cases it's homelessness, seriously. Like, I mean, they're, they're living out of their cars, even though they have full-time employment. And that was something that I first discovered in 2008, 2009. That was just mind blowing to me that people could be working full-time jobs in reasonably good jobs and still be locked out of the housing market. I mean, one of my favorite stories is this woman who was a security guard for Emory hospital with world renowned surgeons walking by her every day. And she'd been homeless for four months and she's working a full-time job as security guard every day. And like, we hear stuff like that all the time. Mm. Wow. And I guess once I'm, once I'm in, you know, what are you seeing as far as, and, and I'm sure it's the same caveat as earlier, right? Depends on the product, depends on et cetera. But, you know, what are you seeing as a range or a typical outcome for how long people will stay, mm-hmm. um, you know, in, in that specific property? Yeah. So uh, it's what we refer to as a very bimodal distribution. So our, our average is nine months, but we have people who stay forever. And then uh, you have another group of people who are generally short-termers that'll stay for like three months. Uh, in that, in the first home that I ever experimented with in 2009, I still have one of the same residents living there the whole time. She works at McDonald's. Uh, the second one I opened in 2011, I have three residents who have been there ever since. Uh, this home, th- like this house opened in 2017. I-, I have two people who've been there since 2017. Uh, then you have people who are usually experiencing some sort of trauma, whether they lost a job, had some sort of medical event, went through a divorce or breakup, um, and they need housing now, but they need it for some period of time, uh, which is until they can get back on their feet and they could otherwise qualify for that, that apartment on their own. Uh, and then in that similar category or somewhere in between those two, you have graduate students, technical college, community college, uh, they're working, but they're in school, uh, or they're, they're just kind of budget dieting, as I like to say, for some, some main life expense, whether that's buying a car, in some cases, even buying a house, we have about a dozen people who have moved with us to repair their credit and have ended up buying houses. Uh, And, uh, but they're, they're saving for something, uh, or starting a new business, etc. Interesting. And so if I look at a manager role and hey, I'm, I, I see the benefits of, I mean, there's higher yield here. There's, you know, more exciting potential results for an investor that I can bring to them. Uh, you know, and for residents, hey, you know, I can tap into to different demand and uh, some interesting benefits as far as that goes there. What, what's the opportunity for me if I'm a, a property manager, uh, you know, trying to get a better experience and better results? you know, for that. And I'm, I'm sure. looking at this, how should I look at that opportunity, the challenges and weigh it all out? Yeah. I, I mean, I think a lot of it depends on what type of manager you are. Uh, so in a, far- in a percentage based pricing model, it's pretty obvious. I mean, you look sure. at a six bedroom home that otherwise would have rent for $2,000. Well, at you 700 know. bucks per month per room, that's $4,200. So that percent is a much bigger number. Um, the, I mean, and and so that's that one's pretty straightforward, uh, but it is also more work. It's not nearly as much work as like an Airbnb, uh, 
but it's more work than a traditional SFR rental. If your idea of a manager is you move somebody in there and you don't go visit the property for four years, like it's not going to be a great fit. Uh, because again, one thing that has been stressed to me, both in my career as an SFR and multifamily manager, as and and what I have loved about this particular model is early intervention and the the ability to to address issues before they come significant problems. Uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, I think if if those two things are are interesting to a property manager, then then it could be a great fit. Uh, the other thing I will say is uh, you will like back to the maintenance questions, you will have more frequent, smaller issues to deal with. Uh, and because utilities are included, one of our biggest ticket items is like internet went out. And, mm -hmm. uh, and so those, those types of things are different than what you might ordinarily come across. So if you're an entrepreneurial property manager trying to build your business, I think it can be an amazing opportunity. If you're tried and true and you want to stick to your knitting, then, then maybe not the best fit. Yeah. It sounds like it's in this interesting space between kind of what long-term or uh, long-term maintenance has been or hot management has been and, and host, it's not quite hospitality management. Hey, you don't have a, a cleaner going to the property every three or four days, uh, you know, maybe once a month. Right. Um, but there's definitely more attention on the property on, on an ongoing basis, but somebody who's saying, Hey, I'm actually interested in, you know, having a little higher touch, you know, with this property, putting more effort in on a per property basis, because there's, you know, more of a reward, right. Ultimately compensating for all that. And, and I'm eager to pursue that kind of opportunity you know, that that could be a good fit for them. Exactly. Um, are there any other like just like critical competencies that you would see as like, hey, this is a real like there's got to be the desire to want to do it. Are there any competencies that you see make somebody uh, like, okay, if you're really good at this, it could be a great fit. If not, maybe not. Not really, to be honest with you, Andrew. I mean, our we talk about our guiding principles uh, for ourselves, but they actually came out of the conversation I had with the property management group, which is care, show it, prove it. Like that's it. You show up on time. And you you do the things that everybody expects that you should be doing anyway. Uh, you can make it work. And if if you care about the product and the property and the resident experience and your landlord, it's going to work. And if you don't, then it's not. So again, seems really obvious, but bears repeating over and over. And I'm I'm surprised at how many times we have to kind of come back to those same themes. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's still, it's still very, very true. And, uh, our, our best hosts by far are the ones who approach it as, uh, like you said, I mean, that, that mix between kind of hospitality and creating a home that people will be proud to, to come call home. Uh, and shockingly, those individuals have really long tenures at, at their properties, uh, versus the ones who, don't care at all or don't care nearly enough and the results are not as good yeah interesting i, I do want to open it up uh for questions i think we're queuing a couple people up now i'm, I'm starting to pull up the chat before we do atticus i have one question that something that caught my attention is is pad split if i'm not mistaken is a registered b corp am i remembering that right yeah so uh i have to be careful around the terminology here there there is a 
Okay. Uh, a B Corp, which is a private certification, which we we are not privately certified. We are chartered as a Delaware Public Benefits Corp. Uh, some people use those terms interchangeably, but they're actually different. Uh, and so what that means is as part of our charter, uh, we have a mandate not just to provide our shareholders with the best possible return, but also to meet a public good, which for us is providing housing for folks that are earning less than 80% of the area median income. Um, yeah, thanks for clarifying that. That's cool. Well, why don't we do this? I think we've got Matt Tandy or some have some questions. Is that all right. Hey, Atticus, appreciate you hopping on here. I think I've met you once before. Uh, I don't know if you know um, Aaron Norris. Uh, I think you've talked with him before. Yeah. Uh, all right. So really a couple questions here. The first one, the big one is what, for, and maybe I missed this in the first couple of minutes, but what furnishings are you providing uh, as a company? Is the client providing? Is the resident providing? Meaning... I assume that it's not just an empty house from day one. Uh, how does that work? Yeah. So, so pad split exists as the marketplace layer. So we don't do any of the stuff in the house on site. Uh, we leave it to the host's discretion, uh, or in your case, the client, to determine what types of furnishings they want to put where. Uh, to be on the platform, we need to see bed, dresser, lamp, place to put clothes. That could be an armoire. That could be a closet. Doesn't, doesn't really matter one way or the other. Uh, and then we can make suggestions for, hey, rooms with higher quality furniture book this much faster uh, and those types, of, those types of things and really evaluating the data for you all. But, uh, but the clients ultimately make those decisions around, uh, around those furnishings. Uh, so, even, so even the individual bedrooms are already pre-furnished. So if, let's say I was wanting to move into one of those rooms. I don't bring in my queen bed. I take what's there. That's correct. Yeah. To, today, all rooms are furnished. Uh, that that may change over time. Uh, and, then, uh, and and part of, I think, the continued evolution that we, we've been through already and will continue to move forward on is giving hosts the ability to customize toward their own business model. Uh, so for us, the minimum stay is only one month. Uh, but for some hosts, they want to say, oh, well, I want a minimum stay of six months. Uh, some hosts want to say, okay, well, I don't really want to furnish and I want to, I think there's a market for unfurnished rentals here. Uh, and so over time, I think you'll continue to see an evolution of, of what's allowable on the platform. Uh, but for today, it is, uh, it is all furnished. Okay. So it's a lot more like student housing at a university in that sense. Very, very similar. So one other question here, and in addition to the rent, are you charging the residents additional fees, whether mandatory or optional uh -oh. packages? So, hey, you know, you, the cleaner is included with the rent or there's an extra $15 a month each guest pays towards that cleaner uh, filters. I don't know, filter delivery, something like that. Uh, so uh, so hosts, hosts set their own pricing. We make recommendations. Uh, and today, we're still using the pricing model that I came up with that I pulled out of thin air uh, five years ago, where I said, okay, well, Airbnb effectively charges 13.8% between the, the hosts and guests. So we want to do more for less, so we're going to charge 12. Uh, and then there are transaction fees if people use credit cards. But um, but that's that's been it. And uh, again, I, I would expect to see uh, some potential changes there over the the next year or so, uh, and and to be able to provide additional customization. But but that's how it's set up today, where 
we're spending a lot of money getting those units filled, but it's not like we pay, we charge a, um, uh, an acquisition fee or one month's rent to, to move somebody in or anything like that. Uh, we only get paid if that resident pays uh, and, and we take 12%. Okay. Oh, so you don't have a leasing or placement fee either per room or anything. It's just, just nope. the 12%. That's correct. Yeah. We urge when, when, a, when a member comes on or when a resident, a prospective resident comes on to apply for membership, uh, they pay $19 for an application fee. And that comes directly to us. We use that to verify their identity, verify their income, uh, and do a criminal background check. Uh, as well as we're pulling credit. We don't actually use credit in the evaluation of that of that individual simply because we had the data to show we didn't think this was correlated. Uh, and we have a lot of use cases at this point to demonstrate that. But uh, but that's really it. Matt, great questions. If you have any others that this inspires, feel free to jump back in. But um, I have a quick one before we bring Steve up, who's got a question. Yeah, I almost can't let the last part go because this is something that's caught my interest recently about just a more um, evidence-based approach to screening and how, you know, like how credit scores are looked at and evaluated, et cetera, you know, can you, can I pull the thread on the sweater there a little bit of what you mentioned of, hey, we're, here's what we're seeing or not seeing there? Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I'll take it even a step farther uh, and, and maybe be a little more controversial. I mean, one of the, the things that I think that we have truly innovated on that, that people don't really talk about is the value of weekly or biweekly all-inclusive payments. Uh, mm -hmm. And screening is a part of why we are as effective at collections as we are. And we are very effective, uh, even though we have an incoming credit score on average of 461, which is like, how can that person ever pay? Our effective collections rate is 97.5%. Uh, and if that seems contradictory to you all, I would expect that it would be. Uh, but I'll ask you all the same, a, a, a to kind of pull on that thread more, a, a simple question, which is what day of the week is August 1st? Mm -hmm. And I would, I would venture that at least nobody has that off the top of their head. And so when we tell a resident who we already acknowledge is living paycheck to paycheck, uh, that you're going to have to budget around the first of the month. And then your water bill is going to be due on the 13th. Your cable bill is going to be due on the 17th. Uh, your gas bill is going to be due on the 24th. And yeah, you're probably going to have to do your payday loan for your furniture as well. And like we're, we're surprised when people can't make those payments. And so I had this experience as a multifamily property manager where I ended up seeing people under eviction because they paid their cable bill on the 13th. And I thought to myself, why on earth would anyone ever do that? That like, that's, that's just poor financial behavior. They need better financial education uh, and their priorities are mixed up. Well, the truth was, as I dug into it, that they paid that guy on the 13th because he was calling them on the 13th. And they felt an obligation to pay the guy. And if I had been there on the 13th, they probably would have felt an obligation to pay me. So if I bundle all of those expenses into one lifestyle cost, and then I say, you know what? I'm not, I don't have any idea if I sit here today, what day of the week August 1st falls on, but I know that today is Wednesday. And if my bill is due Wednesday, 
And I know that it includes my entire cost of living or virtually my entire cost of living, where all I have to worry about is spending food and transportation, I'm much more likely to make that payment. And we've seen that prove out. And I, I don't have the uh, the exact percentages on how, how many more times that is likely to result in on-time payments than evaluating somebody's credit score, but it's massive. It's a massive mm-hmm. difference. Uh, and uh, and so for for us, uh, we looked at okay, well, if 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 we know uh, how credit scores are actually calculated, and we know that this is how the system, the payment system, is already set up, how can we reasonably expect that anybody would have a good credit score? Uh, Whereas we need to just reinvent the wheel and create a much more simplistic system that's easier for, for people to pay. And, and that's, that's absolutely been true. And so like, that's, that's the mind boggling statistic from, from doing this work, which is 461 credit scores, 25 K average income and 97 and a half percent effective collections. Yeah. That's really interesting. We're seeing a lot of uh, people start to approach thinking about this idea of like, okay, rent's due on the first and then due again a month later. And it not really mapping to the income flow, right, of the resident. And to your point, there can be a lot of events that happen. People don't have savings, especially in this profile. I imagine that that's probably very true. You know, thinking about if I get paid biweekly, you know, or if I get paid the first and 15th, well, those are a little different. And being able to, to map the expense flow to the income flow uh, in such a way where, hey, less NSF fees, you know, hopefully less late fees and uh, and higher collections. Um, so it's interesting to hear that you guys have seven done that. So taking some of the things out of the screening process that you found, hey, they aren't that necessary. They don't correlate that well. Is there anything you've added into the screening or that was overlooked before um, or that you're just putting special importance on that you're seeing correlate to, to yeah. a good resultant situation for residents, investors, and managers based on who you're placing? Identity verification is is the biggest one. Um, and I, I'm sure every property manager on this call has experienced the same things that I have, where you think you're booking, you're you think you're you're renting to uh the single mom, and lo and behold, it's her nephew that moves in. Uh happens all the time. Well, for for us, and especially in the multifamily world, but for for us. Having identity verification and the accountability of other residents in the home. So when people come through our booking flow, which is totally different, by the way, like you're going to you're going to pass through that screening process in about two minutes, and you're going to book and move into that home today, 48 hours away, uh, or whenever that host has been able to set their hours, but as quickly as 48 hours from now. And so that entire booking flow and the rate of fill is totally different. And then you're then you're given a Wi-Fi enabled lock code that is specific to you. And even if you're in a home with 10 people, you're the only one with that lock code. And you can track real-time access events to see who's using that code, how many people are, and how many times it's being used on a given day. And so uh, being able to pair access control with identity verification, I think is a is a massive change that doesn't get talked about. A lot, but as property managers, we all know that it's a major issue uh, mm-hmm. in in communities. And and then to have the secondary feature of 
well, if I have a profile for the single mom or you know, Susie who moves in and I have six other people who are telling me, wait a second, that guy doesn't look like Susie, uh, that that changes the game pretty significantly. Yeah. I, and I see Angela's got a couple of good questions. Angela, we're going to put you in the on deck circle, but we're going to bring Steve up uh, now if Steve is ready, Laura. There he is. Steve, good to see you. Do that. See you. Uh, thanks. This is super interesting. Um, I'm in the New York area, Buffalo area. Is there, have you found that there's different rules, laws, and different municipalities and states that make this not able to happen? Great question. Uh, so the reason why these houses exist all over the place is because of those laws. So the first thing that I, I did... Maybe. Uh, I got a, we have, I applied to a housing ideas competition in late 2016, sponsored by JP Morgan Chase Foundation, uh, and got a grant from Enterprise Community Partners and JP Morgan Chase for 10 grand. And I said, all right, I need to go hire an attorney and figure out how we can actually do this and attract legitimate investment. Uh, we've been reasonably successful. We've raised $38 million. So, so far, so good. The, the way that, that we do that is, is ultimately through the definition of a person, which is uh, defined on a statewide level in 47 out of 50 states. And so the, the rules that you're usually worried about are how many unrelated persons can occupy a residence in a single family community or even a multifamily community in some cases. Uh, and so uh, that's one that we address through the definition of person and uh, the Citizens United ruling. And yeah, a corporation is ultimately mm -hmm. defined as a person. So you create an individual corporation for, for each home uh, as, as the tenant, and those residents become members of, of that entity. So that's the first thing, to be able to check that box. The second question is usually around rooming house, boarding house, where uh, it is not legal to rent rooms to the open public in certain jurisdictions. Well, we're not actually open to the public. You have to become a member first, like uh, before you have access to any of these any of these units. So that's that's kind of how we do it today. Um, but uh, the the reality is, like again, I mean, you brought up New York. I mean, in in the city, in New York City, there are probably eighty thousand units just in Queens of illegally subdivided basements for for brownstones, uh, and they're they're ultimately ignored. And so the real answer to your question is your neighbors, right? You 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 care show proof with your neighbors so that whatever fears they have around a property looking like that are completely unmitigated and you address whatever substantive concerns they have as quickly as possible. And if you do that, you don't have a problem. And if you don't do that, you're regardless of whatever the legal structure you might have, you're going to have a problem. So uh, like the, the, the devil is absolutely in the details of, of the operational capacity more so than it is any sort of legal function, um, and, and avoid the uh, code enforcement ever having come out to the property in the first place, because they're going to, because your neighbors are going to call you instead of the, the city or county or whoever it is. Steve, thanks for bringing that question. Um, I think I saw Angela had a couple of questions and. Um, well, I was curious about the access control, and if you're using Point Central, um, I'm assuming or something of the sort to get in the like the front door, back door of the house. But then yeah, they also have not. those same locks on their bedrooms. Yeah. So, uh, so most of our hosts have. We're not using Point Central. I'm not as familiar with that system, but 
uh, we use uh, kind of remote lock enablement that that we're integrated with. So Yale, Schlage, Remote Lock, their their QuickSet I think has some as well that are all on that operating system. Uh, and then there are a number of hosts who use their own. So they're they're not necessarily on our system, and they just so, the same way that you would create codes for an Airbnb property, they create yeah. their own codes and and put them in the system for us. Um, the uh, for the individual locks on bedrooms, usually no. Uh, we have some hosts who um, have toyed with the idea of making those smart lock enabled as well. Generally, it's manual locks though, manual punch code locks, uh, and as they turn the room, then they'll they'll change that lock code. Uh, individually, but because uh, they know they're going to have to send somebody out to investigate and turn the room anyway. But uh, but yeah, I mean, we would certainly accept that, and uh, it just it hasn't necessarily been cost effective. I think for most of our hosts at this point. Interesting. I loved what you said about the way to get around the municipalities <laughs> because I'm battling that where I live, where my business is, um, which my business is primarily like, student rentals, but the city is very against having more than three unrelated people living in a property. They were giving us four person exceptions and they don't care if it's students or whoever, they just don't, They're but it's really geared toward the students. And I am going to get in so much trouble if I take your suggestion and go talk to my attorney. The city's going to hate me, but that's brilliant. I'm very impressed. <laughs> uh, I, I don't deserve the credit. All I did was spend money on the attorney. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I think, uh, again, the main thing I can't iterate enough is just focus on the operations and make sure that they don't have a legitimate reason to complain. And then you go to the, the, the policymakers and say, excuse me, sir, do you believe that people serving in our communities deserve an opportunity to live there? And very rarely do I ever hear no to the answer to that question. Uh, and, and as such, we've actually uh, started a, a nonprofit, a 501c4 lobbying organization, and would be happy to take anybody's information or continue to look into it, the National Association for Shared Housing. Uh, and uh, we, we've gone toe to toe with some of, the, some of those local jurisdictions. And the reality is like, these laws are unconstitutional. <laughs> I mean, whether, whether they are ready to admit it or not, you have a massive supply problem. You have a, a huge portion of the population who is working in government jobs a lot of the times that can't afford their housing. And they can't because local jurisdictions won't get out of their own way to unlock supply creation. And we're sitting on empty bedrooms, literally, uh, where 4% of the housing, give or take, that we already have could solve the entire problem. It's just stupid. <laughs> and and, and the, 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 the more pain that we can put on some of those local municipalities that, that just have their heads in the sand, more they'll start to realize, oh, wait a second, this is a really cost-effective way to solve this problem. And it can be done in such a way that still manages to not tick off all the neighbors. You know, um, Atticus, <laughs> a couple of things you're saying that I'm curious about. One is access control yeah, for vendors and maintenance folks, et cetera. Very similar. Sometimes coordinating with somebody who may not be home, right? And the house is empty and locked, et cetera. Like there, there are the access control challenges there. You know, do, do you see any, you know, unique benefits or unique challenges to having... Uh, oh. a co-living shared housing? Um, 
I mean, sometimes like I have Xfinity Comcast going out to a property that I own today um, because some trees fell down and knocked down the, the cable wires. Uh, so in those situations, yeah, I have six people in the home. I'm betting that somebody's going to be home and I know they're all really motivated to get their internet back working. So, yeah. uh, so in those cases, yeah, I mean, I, I think there is a, there is a marginal benefit there. Uh, access control generally though. Absolutely. I mean, when I got started in the business and it was, oh, I have to leave a manual lockbox somewhere or have to arrange to go meet a vendor out there. And that's just, thank God, but completely a thing of the past. Uh, but I'm sure that's true, not just for, for us, but for, for anybody in the space now. And the other thing that I was thinking about as you were just talking about this is it, it reminded me of you know, other businesses that have taken this like opportunity of distressed inventory of, you know, like unused inventory. Yeah. Um, you know, when you think about the Airbnbs of the world, right. Or, uh, you know, ultimately cars that aren't getting used and Hey, sure. uh, you know, Uber networks, et cetera, things like this of bringing that to people. And, and in some cases able to drive affordability or certainly more choices, right. And more options. Yeah. And that that's driven a lot of success for them. Yeah. Uh, really cool to see how you've brought that in a interesting way to, um, you know, the innovation you guys are bringing here. You know, I, th I definitely think there's some people interested in how you're getting uh, credit for $19 or screening done for for $19. But um, I, I just want to end with Atticus a big thank you for spending your time with today. I, I think a lot of people find this really fascinating, uh, what you guys are doing. And it's been fun to track and watch your guys' company. I remember a couple, uh, maybe a few years ago, maybe a couple years. My, my sense of time has been a little funny these last couple of years, but, and I think it was like 500 or 600 units or something like that. And to hear you guys are at 4,500, um, it's a, it's a real testament to what you guys are doing. So just want to say thank you and give you the last word, Atticus, if there's anything else you wanted to share before hopping off. Yeah, no, I mean, I really appreciate the opportunity to, to engage with some professionals in the space. And uh, I mean, listen, I, I think uh, you all know your individual businesses better than anyone. And, and I, I truly have, faith in local operators uh being able to to solve the problems and the question is can can we help provide tools and an incentive structure uh that can that can ultimately do this because i know it's uh we're, we're not all evil landlords uh and in fact very 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 few of us are uh but we need to be able to run a business successfully and and i think we can do some good in the world awesome well we're rooting you on atticus thanks for being here today thanks for sharing all of this everybody who Join us today. Thanks for spending some time and bringing some questions. I know those listening after will appreciate uh, the relevance that comes out of asking those kind of questions live uh, and getting those kind of questions answered here. So uh, take care, have a great one, and we'll catch you next time. That's all for today's Triple Win Property Management Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for sharing a piece of your life with us. We do not take it for granted. I also want to give a shout out to Carol Housel for everything she and our team does to make these possible. It's crazy to think about over 5,000 professional property managers have pressed play on episodes in season one and season two now. And we really wanna encourage you to keep giving feedback because more and more people are listening. It's getting better and better and better thanks to everything that you're sharing with us. If you like this enough to listen, wanna encourage you to share it with other people. Um, you can give us feedback directly on those social media channels, Facebook, LinkedIn, wherever you're hanging out. You can also send us an email at triplewin at secondnature.com. And we just want to give more. We're, we're, there's no sales pitch here. Just want to offer more resources that help you find and stack your next triple win. 
and become a triple win driven property manager. So where can you find that? You can find a private Facebook group. You can find our blog. You can find our newsletter. You can find more resources all at rbp.secondnature.com. Just search for what you're looking for there. And every time we see you, we want to see a better version of you and your business to that end. Keep it going. Feel inspired. Take our encouragement. And we'll see you next time.